0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com. You know, the weather's getting warmer. So I, for one, am ready to say goodbye to my jackets and my sweaters and hello to shorts and tees.
1: I'm right there with you, Kate.
0: And you know what I actually, actually, I donned double quince the other night. I've got what? to tell you. Okay. Yeah. This is what's so great about Quince, because I feel like I have really been able to update my wardrobe like for the long haul without spending a fortune. I wore a gorgeous white tee, like a simple, perfect white cotton t-shirt from mm. Quince, but it was a little chilly out. So I threw on my cashmere hoodie, also from Quince. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. I'm Kate Spencer. And I'm Dory Shafrir. And we
1: are not experts. But we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums.
0: Well, hello, Dory. Hello, Kate. I want you to know that I am really going through it with intuitive eating. Mm Mm-hmm. For over a year, listeners have been emailing this podcast, DMing our Instagram and saying to old me, hey, read the intuitive eating book. And you know, you can lead a horse to water but you can't make a drink, Dory.
1: You can lead a Kate to intuitive eating, but you can't make her do the workbook.
0: No, or read the actual or book. Or read
1: the book. But now I am.
0: You're in the right place to do it. Well, you know, that is what the nutritionist who I just started seeing, who I'm working with on this process said to me they were like you are you're in the you are in the space to do this work so everyone i'm doing the work on my disordered eating and my addiction to diet culture and my low self-esteem and my body dysmorphia and poor body self-image and just all of that nitty-gritty good stuff and um the way i it has felt is it honestly feels like um I've been in a cult and I just kind of realized it and I'm trying to get myself out of the cult, Mm -hmm. but I still kind of want to be in the cult Mm because the cult feels safe. Um, So it's been a really interesting experience. And if if anyone has never heard of intuitive eating um, it is a book and the focus is really on like creating a new healthy relationship with food and rejecting diet culture. And I'm definitely excited about doing it, but it Mm -hmm. is bringing up a lot of stuff. Um, it's hard. Yeah. It's scary. It's also making me feel sad in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm, Cause you have to like confront part of that, but also like, I'm feeling very, like I, I grew up with families in, you know, both my mom and dad's side with grandparents and parents who had really loving relationships with food. Both my sets of grandparents, even though they came from very different backgrounds, had, um, beautiful
1: grew a ton of their
0: own food. I spent, I spent time with spend time with my grandparents in their gardens and they, they made they really cooked from scratch and they made really beautiful. There was a lot of love and how they, you know, presented food and how we ate as a family. And so I'm, I'm just feeling, I don't know why it's making me feel sad. Like I, I just am because I think that's what I'm longing for. And I really want to kind of move towards that as a Mm -hmm. lifestyle um so yeah it's been really interesting but thank you so many people have um offered me like people to follow on Instagram and podcasts to listen to and books to read and body positive memes and I really appreciate it because this is really uh like uh, uh, this is shit this is hard for yeah. me yeah it's hard
1: I feel like for me it's been like a years long journey but weirdly being pregnant I Feel I've, I feel like I'm in like the best place with food that I ever have been. That's beautiful. That's so powerful. It's I hope so it stays weird. that way. I know. Me too. Because like everything that you're saying, I'm like, yep, been there. Yep. Yep. And I think I had been getting better. And then being pregnant, I'm just like oh, this is really about listening to your body.
0: Yes, which is what kind of the focus is of intuitive yeah. eating and mindful eating. So yeah. I just
1: feel like I've sort of, I don't
0: know. That's beautiful, Dory. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, that's not to sound too cheesy, yeah, here, but I that's like really powerful.
1: I've, I've been steeped in diet culture my whole life. So I think you just don't even realize how how much you grow up with that stuff.
0: Oh my God. Well, that's that's the other thing really thinking about it is you know, someone on Instagram asked me, when was the last time I had a healthy relationship with food and my body? I was like, I don't, I don't know. Third grade? Yeah. F- not fourth. Like the second I started developing and growing, I started to have very deep, like low self-esteem and body yeah. image issues. And then like, you know, we also, diet culture is, has been around forever. And it was really Hard when in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. Not that it's not hard now. Now it's all disguised as like wellness, mm-hmm. um, whereas it was more just like lose weight. Yeah, you know, eat these dis,
1: these, these, eat low, these low fat wells. cookies. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about snack wells. <laughs> we're fucking haunted by snack wells. <gasps> yes, snack wells were a scam, and no one realized it. No, and like that fucking the diarrhea chips yeah. with the
0: Alestra. So, you know, it's just years and years and years of shit. And also for me, diet, uh, losing weight is connected to my grief because I did Weight Watchers mm. right after my mom died to like as a really wonderful way to have some control over my life and ended up getting losing way too much weight. And, it, you know, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. But um, I, mix, I feel good about it.
1: I'm excited for you.
0: Well, I can't wait to hear about your journey. You know, one, one thing on my journey is like relearning that for me, beans aren't bad because I kind of got sucked into certain eating styles where you don't eat beans. So I put chickpeas on. Oh, interesting. Uh, oh yeah, Dory. I mean, it's all, you know, so just like being like,
1: Oh, I can eat beans. Yeah. I mean, that's how just
0: f- f- like mine. For me, it
1: was like, Oh, I can eat bread.
0: I'm also having that experience. I ate a bagel today and like giving myself permission to eat it and mm-hmm. not feel like I've committed a crime is
1: really something. But I think, and then we can move on. Yeah. But mm. I was actually thinking about this this morning and I was thinking about how I feel like I'm so much more aware now of what food fills me up and makes me feel good. Totally. And what food doesn't make me feel good. And it's not about pathologizing different kinds of food. It's not about calling a certain food bad or for a certain food good. It's just like, well, this this food doesn't make me feel good. So I'm not going to eat it.
0: Well, and and the thing with the different diets and styles of eating is that they're not one size fits all totally which, which for some reason i am just like opening my eyes to is that you know like i don't have a dairy intolerance right You're like i can have milk yeah and that to Same. me is, yeah like getting back
1: to drink like having yeah. milk in my coffee is like feels very terrifying oh my god when i started drinking whole milk again i was like whole milk is delicious it is i love it
0: <laughs> oh, anyway thank you for listening to me and and I just do want to say, like, I am—I'm a real. This is—I'm like in the beginning stages of doing this. Like, I had somebody on Instagram ask, like, "Would you recommend I do this this way?" And I like—I don't know. I yeah. am a hundred percent a student in this. I'm gonna fail many times. I don't know how this is all gonna turn out. So I don't have advice for anybody else doing this. Um, I am like a a beginner. I am like Great. dipping the toe, but uh, I'm happy
1: to be here. I'm happy to have you here. So Dory. Yes, enough about me. I mean, I'm happy to talk about you all day. I'm not. (laughs) Fair.
0: (laughs) But tell me, you know, I see you over there growing a life. Yes. And
1: how is it going?
0: Well, he's growing. Is he getting bigger? I mean, I know that's the way babies progress. But like, are you feeling a marked difference? He's
1: much more active. He's like Mm. moving around all the time. Do we think he's going to have hair when he comes out? Oh, Did not I tell you this? At my last ultrasound, they were like, he has hair. They can see that? Yes. And it was only like 32 or 33 weeks. He already had hair.
0: No. So, yes,
1: I think he is going to have hair when he comes out. Oh my gosh. I know.
0: Wow, the technology is magical. Weird.
1: Very weird. You've
0: had so much going on at yes. home, which I feel like it always, like when it rains, it pours. Of course,
1: at the end yes. of your pregnancy, And I knew March was going to be crazy.
0: Dare you say March Madness?
1: It has been March Madness. Um, Matt is finally done with work, but the last few weeks have just, like, I basically haven't seen him. He has been working 20 hour days? He's been, not 20, but like, he's been leaving the house at 6.15. In the morning? Yes. Because he has to be on set at 7.
0: Yikes, yikes, yikes.
1: And then he's been getting home anytime between like... 8 p.m. And midnight p.m. Ouch. Midnight p.m. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then on the weekends, he's had it have been like devoted to podcasts because he can't do anything during the week. So not only have I not seen him that much, but uh, like the baby stuff. And I talked about this a little bit last week. Yeah. But like the baby stuff has just been like, oh, and the construction in our house is still happening. So your house is chaotic. House is chaotic. Um, we did put down the rug in the nursery. That's a step. (laughs) It was a step because I was like, you know what? I don't want to build this Ikea furniture without the rug down. I'm sorry. Don't you mean
0: Ikea? Ikea. Ikea.
1: I I don't know. I'm just going to say it any way I can. Um, without the rug down. So that actually felt good. I ordered some curtains, Little things are happening, but like the big things haven't been able to happen because my desk is still in my office because we can't move it into his office because it's under construction, et cetera. I
0: I wanted to mention something that you wrote in our notes. Yes. Because I think it speaks to a larger experience that um, expecting parents go through. Go on. You have here that you're getting anxious about the baby coming early and you wrote before anyone says anything, I'm aware he just needs a place to sleep. But with mine, you it will give you peace of mind to have the clothes washed and put away, et cetera, to have your crib set up. And I think it can be very frustrating to be told by people who already have children what, how is it going to be, what you need, what you don't need. There's a little bit, it's a weird kind of, there are people are just trying to help. Totally. But it, everyone is different. Yes. And what you might need in order to be prepared and comfortable in the situation of welcoming a child into the world is different from every other person. Yeah. And it can be very exhausting. I'm going to shut up now, but I just, I just saw that and it just resonated with me because, no. And
1: I mean, I touched on this a little bit last week, but like, you know, I think especially given the nature of my other podcast, we get a lot of unsolicited advice and, like you said, I think most of it is very well-meaning, but it is exhausting to go through. A lot of it is well-meaning and conflicting with other advice that we get. So I'm sort of like wading through all of this stuff. And a lot of it has the, I don't want to say patronizing, but there is this tone of like, well, just wait and see kind of thing about things I sa- I've i said that I want to do with the baby. And it's like, well, you don't know what kind of baby you're going to have. And like, that, true, I don't. But it's exhausting to like wade through all of that. And same thing with preparing the nursery. Like, it's just like, this is going to make me feel better. So what's your problem? Doesn't affect you, no. <laughs> except that you have to listen to me complain about it
0: well by choice
1: <laughs> by choice but you can fast forward
0: that's true put yeah. it on two speed yeah,
1: exactly um so that's just kind of where i'm at
0: thanks do you
1: i am doing me especially
0: in this time this weird space of like it's it's almost time but not yet yes it's just that weird kind of like waiting and staring into the unknown totally you feel like you're doing something
1: yes i get it um but the other thing that happened this week is Kate you threw me a lovely baby shower. Well, thank you. It was. I concur. It was really it was really wonderful. Perfect. Oh, that's so
0: I and it was not just me. I had three co-hosts. Yes. It just happened to be in it was my at home. Your home.
1: Yes, but Karen, Abby, Danielle, shout out to you. Great job everyone. It was it was everything I was hoping for. Oh, good. I had such a nice time. It, it was, it was really great. And I got so many great children's books. I'd asked people to yeah. give me children's books. Um, I asked them for a favorite book, new or used. Um, and there were no duplicates. That was impressive. I was shocked. Yeah. Also, I was surprised. I, I had not heard of so many of them and they were all amazing. There's
0: so many fantastic children's yes. books
1: in the world. Yeah. Yes.
0: So my daughter just got one for her sixth birthday called either dot or the dot that I had never. It's so wonderful. It's about art and making art and how anything can be art. And I never heard of it. And it's like this very famous children's book that my kids both knew. And it was new to me and it was wonderful. So this just feels like there's an endless world of fantastic books for kids. (sighs) Well,
1: Well, on that note, I'm 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 glad you were pleased. Oh, I was. Very pleased, so thank you. Can
0: I say something that you do that I really like? Oh, yes. You give, like, instead of writing a thank you note after the shower, you came equipped with thank you gifts for the hosts. I did. You do preemptive thank yous. I, I, I did do that. That's really thoughtful you know, and a nice
1: touch. Oh, thank you. I've never
0: thought about doing that before. Classy
1: lady. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, That's what I'm saying. You know, I know... I I knew how much hard work went into this shower, and I just wanted the people who put in that hard work to know that I appreciated it.
0: Uh, Well, you gave me a cool mug with my initial in it, and I drank out of it last night during my mindful eating snack hour. Oh, good! Before bed.
1: Oh, good! So thanks for that. I know I saw those mugs, and I was like, oh, I'll get them personalized initial. Really pretty. It was a
0: pretty mug. Thanks. Okay. So I just wanted to interject that. Did you that.
1: notice what kind of candle I got you?
0: Yeah. Cozy Nights, my yes. number one fave candle. I picked that up especially for you. Listen, me. thank Did it there's only?
1: There was only one left. Oh, good. And I was like, Kate must get this. <laughs> I one. love Cozy Nights. Do you know that I
0: bought two Cozy Nights to burn during your shower? Oh, my goodness. They were going as the shower was happening. Oh, and then when I opened my little present and had a new Cozy Nights, I was like, you know what? It's just full circle. <laughs> cozy Nights. You know what? Wouldn't you love to interview the person who created
1: that scent? Oh, Oh, yes. Who are they? Who are in you? In a lab somewhere at Target HQ. Totally in Minneapolis. There's yeah. some scent master. They're super hygiene. Huga. Sorry, i got another word I can't say. I think, I think it's Huga. Anyway,
0: okay, we've gotten so off track, but if that person exists and listen to the podcast. I bet Nora knows them. Oh,
1: Nora McInerney. She know knows everybody. every important person in Minneapolis. And Just, this might be the most important person in Minneapolis. I mean,
0: possibly up there, up there.
1: So, in honor of our very special guest today, I
0: mean, Dory,
1: <laughs> dream guest. You know, it's it's one of those things where you're a little nervous scheduling an interview with someone like Jacqueline Winspear because you're like, oh my god, what if she is not as amazing as I you know want her to be? But guess what, she was. You know, sometimes
0: I <laughs> say, never meet your heroes, right? But sometimes meeting our heroes is as amazing as you want it, it to be. It was great. I
1: mean, not to hype up the interview too much. Listen, stay tuned. Yeah. I did any- take a photo of you during the interview because you were adorable. I was so excited. It was beaming. But um, we wanted to talk about writing. Yeah. Because we, we get a lot of questions about this, about our own processes. How do you do it? How are you such amazing, <laughs> talented writers who just write with <laughs> ease and grace? That's what all the questions say. Every it's single, so And
0: weird. we're like, we don't know. We're just so good at it. We love it so much. <laughs> J.K. Uh, writing is a thing. It's hard. Yeah, Sometimes. it's hard. It's um, it's hard, and you and it feels like something that should flow out of you. Yes, like your menstrual cycle. Sure. And
1: instead, <laughs> some days you have a very light flow. And some days it's heavy, Dory. Some days it's you need that super plus.
0: I love a super plus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, you know, I just sold another book
0: kudos to you.
1: Thank you. Which I'm very excited about. But I also have to write it. And especially in the last few weeks, my life has been so chaotic. Mm-hmm. With travel, with getting ready for the baby with having construction, in my house with having my husband, basically gone, you had family visiting I had family visiting, like, I have not been able to find the time or the mental space to be working on my book in the last few weeks. So that's been a little rough. Um, I find that I think I write the best when I do have kind of a routine in place.
0: Like kind of an everyday, same time, I like same it. spot. It
1: doesn't necessarily have to be the same time, but I do like having it in a spot that I feel comfortable in. Um, I know that you were looking for kind of a... A coffee shop with no
0: internet. Did you find a good
1: cozy spot for writing? I did not. Um, And actually, I've I've lately found that coffee shops in particular are a little too distracting. But you had success at the library. But I did have success at the library, at the West Hollywood Library, which is gorgeous. Um, And I'm also very much looking forward to the wing opening.
0: Mm -hmm, Me too.
1: But it's been delayed by a few months. So I don't think it's going to open before my baby comes. (laughs) Um, But... I think that will be a conducive work environment as well. So, you know, just kind of like plugging along. Um, I do find it useful to keep a notepad by my bed.
0: That's your standard. That's that's just like gold Dory advice. Look, I
1: love a notepad by my bed. It works for you. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night. I'm like, oh, I should write an essay about that. And I just like scrawl it on the notepad because I based on experience, like I have come up with ideas in the middle of the night been like, oh, I'll remember this in the morning and then had no recollection. Like I I know enough to know that I had an idea and I can't remember what the idea was. I and totally that is know it. And the yep. most frustrating Very thing frustrating. in the world.
0: And oftentimes the weird ideas you have right before you go to sleep like feel so great. And you're like, I'll remember this. Yes. This is perfect. I've solved the plot. Totally. And you
1: wake up and you're like, what? What were they supposed to be doing? But I also think that a part of writing that is often overlooked is the the preparation for the actual writing in a way that is unstructured. And what I mean by that is, like, I get a lot of ideas when I'm just like in the shower, lying down in bed, half asleep, taking a walk with no phone. Like, Anything where I don't have my phone.
0: Right. You aren't staring at a
1: computer. I'm not staring at a computer. My mind is just allowed to wander. That is really important. And I feel like people don't talk about that enough.
0: That's a really, I. that's also a big part of the process for me is just kind of like letting the story sit in your brain and totally. seeing what like, I'll be like putting on my clothes and I'm like, oh, this character's got to do this in this moment to make yes. this happen. My, my husband, who is uh, a writer, he often like will go for a run or go for a walk mm-hmm. or a bike ride. Yeah. And, and just to get his brain, mm-hmm. just to kind of think about things. I
1: think the worst time to quote unquote, come up with an idea is sitting in front of your computer.
0: I really appreciate what you're saying. That's really true. And I hadn't given that much credit.
1: And you know, spoiler, but Jack Jacqueline talks about this because she came up with the idea for Maisie Dobbs while she was daydreaming at a stoplight. I mean... <laughs> She tells the story much better than I do. Yes. I mean, so. <laughs> and look, uh, Stephanie Meyer, prankst- prankster,
0: prank caller extraordinaire, calls into this podcast. <laughs> fake Stephanie she Meyer. She hasn't called in for a while. Well, do you know that on the invite list for our Austin meetup, someone RSVP'd a Stephanie Meyer? Oh, my God. And wrote a Twilighty joke? No. The pranks continue. Wow. But Stephanie Meyer had a dream about yes. two people in a field, and that became Twilight. Yeah. Okay. All right. Look. Um, I, so I'm drafting a novel. Yes. I've never written, never written fiction. I, mean, I have written a million half finished pieces of sure. fiction. My goal in this case is just to get to the fifth to a 50,000 word count mm-hmm. goal that I've set for myself. And the way I'm kind have kind of been rethinking it is that this draft that I'm writing, this first draft is almost more of an outline yes where i'm kind of just putting in things that happen am mm-hmm. i getting the emotional stakes right the first time am i getting the plot or the the arcs right i don't think so but i'm just kind of getting stuff on like it's almost like i'm placeholdering 50,000 words and then i can go in and really like add the meat to the bones a bit yeah um what i find really interesting about the, the biggest revelation I've had about writing, and I have done it for many years, but also I'm still a total novice and beginner, is that you cannot, like, nobody can tell you how to write mm. or what the right, right way is to write a book or outline a book or write a personal, like, it's the way you do it is the right way for yeah. you. Because I have so many friends who are amazing, like prolific outliners, and they write a 20 to 30 page outline. And I have other friends who just do what's called pantsing, where they just write and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I actually feel like that's what Stephen King does. I've, I've read his writing book and now, of course, I don't remember. So apologies if I get that wrong. But um, just being gentle with myself and knowing that the way it's all coming out, like in this weird zigzaggy way that feels, quote unquote, wrong is actually like the right process Yes, for that me. is your process. Yes. And so I'm about 26,000 words into that's this draft. That's amazing it feels really good. And yesterday I had this epiphany where I was like, Hey, Kate, if you just wrote a thousand words a day for 25 days, you'd meet your goal. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I start today. And then I didn't, but, but I just knowing that how, how quickly I could accomplish this big goal that I've set for myself. Uh, I would like to kind of, to kind of try that.
1: When do I get to read it?
0: Dory in five years. It is it is, in, is it is in a garbage state right now. And I say
1: that with love. I don't know if it's Kate, bad. You saw very early drafts of startup.
0: But I am like I I am just it's this is draftier. Okay. This is All right. very drafty and I think I would wanna do another like once I get my big word dump done. Yeah. Then I'm gonna go in and actually shape it. Okay. Right now it's just like someone hacked off a big piece of clay and threw it on the table. And mm. then I'm gonna do
1: the first sculpting. Okay, I was very bad at ceramics.
0: Oh, me too. I'm I honestly art with my hands is not my thing. Same. But art with our brains? Art with our art with voices?
1: the pages? Art with our voices. <laughs> this is art. But you know, a lot
0: I, I the only thing that makes a person a writer is if you sit down and write.
1: Amen.
0: You don't have to sell a book, you don't have to be published. You don't have to have an essay in this place or that place. Really, writing is just a practice that you share with yourself. Yeah, um, I really, really believe that. So if it's something that you are curious about or interested in, just, just do it Yeah, in whatever way feels good for you.
1: And I feel like I've plugged this several times before, but I really think that the artist's way...
0: It's is fantastic. It's a
1: great way to get into a writing practice.
0: Yeah, and and I also Elizabeth Gilbert's book about creativity. Yes, really,
1: I love helped magic. me. Yeah,
0: that and that was really a turning point for my brain in
1: totally. terms of creativity.
0: Anyway, on that note, on
1: that note, let's take a break, and then we're gonna come back with <laughs> the writer of Maisie Dogs. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash forever35 for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince.com slash forever35 to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com
1: slash forever35. Our guest today is Jacqueline Winspear. Who is the author of 11 New York Times bestsellers, including To Die But Once, In This Grave Hour, Journey to Munich, A Dangerous Place, Leaving Everything Most Loved, and Elegy for Eddie, in addition to earlier national best-selling novels. Her standalone novel, The Care and Management of Lies, was also a New York Times bestseller. And a finalist for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. Winspear has won numerous prizes, including the Agatha, Alex, and McCavity Awards for the first book in the series, Maisie Dobbs, which was also nominated for the Edgar Award for Best Novel and was named a New York Times notable book. Originally from the United Kingdom, she now lives in California. Welcome, Jackie, to Forever 35.
2: Well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me. This is this is great (laughs) to to meet you. (laughs) We're so excited
1: to meet you. Um, We are both big fans of Maisie and of yours and our listeners have become fans. And so we're excited to talk to you about the series and about the new book um, and about this other exciting new book that you have coming out called What Would Maisie Do? Um, So I guess Mm -hmm. I should preface all that by saying this week, you have two new books coming out. Um, One is called The American Agent. And it is the 15th book in the series?
2: Yes it is. Wow. Okay. Yes. I, I or is it the sixteen and you know, I I I hate to say it but I tend to lose track. It is the fifteenth <laughs> book in the series. Okay. I just <laughs> have to remember I've written seventeen books and of course one was The Care and Management of Lies, which was my standalone. Right. And then there's um What Will Maisie Do, which is nonfiction. <laughs> yes.
1: And so what would Maisie do is also coming out this week and that is kind of a companion slash journal to the series. Um, So we will be talking about both of those. Um, But I'd love to just start with the genesis of Maisie. You have said that (laughs) Maisie just appeared to you one day while you were daydreaming at a stoplight while driving to work. Um, Can you tell us about (laughs) that experience and what led you to turn that daydream into what it has become?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it, it sounds a bit woo-woo, doesn't it? But I, I figure if, if, you know, eight Harry Potters can come to J.K. Rowling on a train from London to Glasgow, then I can get a Maisie Dobbs stuck in traffic in San Rafael, California. Yeah, so, definitely. But, um, it was one of those days when, and we, we we all know them because we've had a few recently, uh, when it never rains in California, but it paused. Yes. And I was on my way to work. It was absolutely chucking it down. And I got to this place on 2nd on Street in San Rafael, which is not far from where I live, on my way to the freeway. And and literally all I could see ahead of me was taillights and stoplights and everything was started like red lights through the rain. And it, it was just, everything was stuck. So there I was at a stoplight. And it, you, I'm a bit of a daydreamer at the best of times, I've got to tell you that. And uh, it usually starts off with wondering about whether I had you know, turned the stove off and whether, did I leave the dog? Did I give the dog her meds? And did I do all the things that you doubt yourself when you left home and given a chance to think about it. And literally, I mean, it was, I was sitting in traffic and it, it was at once as if I were watching a movie in my head. I saw this woman, I know it sounds really weird. I saw this woman appear in my mind's eye and she came up through the uh, tube station at Warren Street. And I knew it was Warren Street because that was the tube station I used to take to work every day in Fitzroy Square. And But it wasn't a, a sort of stainless steel escalator. It was the old wooden clunkety clunkety clunk. And instead of coming through a machine where you put your ticket in one end and it comes out the other, it was a turnstile. Mm. So my head was back in time. And, I, you know, um, Maisie Jobs came through. She stopped to talk to the newspaper vendor. She walked down the street. She stood in front of a, a building, one of the Georgian buildings there, and took out an envelope with two keys in it. And and and, and readers will know the rest of the story. Um, and that was in my mind's eye. And I knew her name instinctively. I wow. knew her name was Maisie Dobbs. I didn't have to think to myself, this, what is this all about? And am I going completely nuts here? <laughs> and suddenly I heard all this honking Someone had wound down the window and saying, you're waiting for any particular shade of green, lady. And uh, because everybody everybody had moved on, you know, and I quickly sped up and, you know, it was a a good sort of, it was an hour's drive into work. And um, by the time I got to work, I would say I had the framework of the whole story in my head. Wow. And and I, I, I couldn't wait to get home to write it, to write something. And I came racing home that day, and, you know, the dog's waiting to go out for a walk. And I just sat down and I wrote what became the first chapter of Maisie Dobbs. And wow. um, it, it hadn't changed the time. I mean, that ch- chapter was never changed from, from beginning to end. Wow. And, we, uh, and it, uh, from the time, you know, I wrote it to the time it went to press. What, um, what and, was your... You know, I I continued working on it. And then, of course, you know, life gets in the way. You get busy, you get a new job, blah, 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 blah. And I, I actually... I'd only written just a few chapters and I had a really bad writing accident and uh, the following year, um, well, actually late, later on that year, I beg your pardon, later on that year, and um, the, uh, one of my friends said to me, well, now's the chance for you to finish that novel. And of course, mm-hmm. my, I had my right arm in a structure. And I'm right-handed. Oh, and, and I oh. said, well, look at this, you know, feeling all sorry for myself. And she said, well, you've got a left hand, haven't you? <laughs> you know? So I, I, I finished the book basically with one hand on the keyboard. And so that was the story. Maisie Jobs is the story of my recovery from an accident as well.
1: <laughs> and what
0: was your job that, at uh, the time? You mentioned you were going to work. What were you doing? And did your... I
2: was... Wor- uh, oh, I yeah, said, that's, um, I- that's a good question. I was, I was working for a telecommunications company. And, um, it's interesting. It was a job that I'd taken. Um, I had previously been in a very, very demanding job and where I didn't have time to write. And that's what I really wanted to do. Um, I was right. Uh, and so I had, uh, I, I decided to take a a, 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 sales job and anybody that's ever worked in sales knows that, you know, once you've made your point, you can pretty much work your hours. And so I was writing articles and essays. I was essentially a nonfiction writer. I was a U.S. correspondent for a couple of international education magazines. And, uh, and the day job, you know, paid the rent. But did you ever <laughs> so think you were, doing. did you ever have plans
1: of writing fiction? Or this was just something that happened because you, you came up with this character?
2: Um, I had never planned to write fiction. And, and the reason being, this is going to sound very naive, but I, I, I felt myself to be a non-fiction writer, writing articles, features, essays. My big ambition was to write a blockbuster biography of some kind. Mm. Um, I just would like to have found the person. Um, and I didn't, I didn't write, and I love memoir. I love the personal essay. And I had not thought of writing fiction because I didn't think I could tell a story. Oh, wow. And I, I didn't think I could actually craft a story. And it's interesting because one of my um, uh, sort of I'd been doing a memoir class with um, Bay Area writer Adele Lara. And um, she, she does wonderful memoir classes, which was great fun. She was actually the friend who said to me, you know, you've got you know, you've got a left hand, haven't you? And. Um, <laughs> She had always said, maybe you should try your hand at fiction. I said, no, I'm not a fiction writer. You <laughs> know, that's not me. And one of my revelations, which of course every fiction writer knows, but I didn't grasp it at the time, was that in fact you can touch truth more readily mm. with fiction than you can with fact. And every ri- every writer of fiction from the myths and legends onwards has known that. But it was only till I started to write fiction that I realised that it offered. So much, yeah, for for the creative writer. And so, your books, story.
1: your books are set. Well, I guess they're set in flashback in World War One, but in in the present, they're set in the period between the wars, and then in World War Two. Um, and they're they're so detailed; they're so rich with historical detail. Um, and and I, I guess I'm wondering what your research process is like. I mean. You are writing fiction, but there's so much in there that seems historically accurate. You're really able to evoke this period so well.
2: Um, thank you for that. Um, in some ways, I feel as though I've been researching my subject my entire life mm. um, for the following reason. When I was a child, I was very aware, even as a small child, of. And, and I'm going to use, sort of really, sort of, I suppose, grown-up terms here. This is not something I would have ever been able to articulate as a child, obviously. I was aware of the lingering legacy mm-hmm. of war mm-hmm. because I saw it in my grandfather, who was shell-shocked, gassed, and had horrible leg wounds from the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Oh. I saw what it could do to someone because when I had questions, even as a small child, it was, why... Why does Granddad breathe like that? You know that mm. rasping breath. Why does Why do we have to be quiet around Granddad? Why does Why do Granddad's legs hurt? And it was always the same answer. He was wounded in the yeah. Great War. He was wounded, and the word "wound" was always used. It was never he was hurt mm. because that's what happened to my dad when he fell off a ladder. Your dad's hurt himself. You know he he was not um, injured. He was, it was none of those other words. It was mm-hmm. he was wounded and. There was something in the way that the word was articulated that it seemed to go to the very soul of a person that I could never have, as I said, articulated that as a child, but I could feel it. Mm. And that childish curiosity, as I came into teenagerhood, became a more adult inquiry. I started studying the war poets at school. It was on the curriculum. It cried my eyes out, everything Mm -hmm. that Wilfred Owen wrote. And then... I, I just became interested in, in in this notion that we have that, uh, and this is where uh, I, I guess I, I I didn't become frustrated at history, but I just knew there was something more to it. Mm-hmm. That big events have beginning and end. Oh, the Great War, nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen, right. the Second World War, nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty five or forty six, depending on which country you're in, and. Um, But I knew that my grandfather's war never ended. Mm. I knew when I came to America for the first time when I was 19 that, you know, young men who had been to Vietnam, their war never ended. Yeah. uh, For many of them. And so I just became very interested in, 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 in the human cost and what happens to ordinary people. Ordinary people at home. And who go to the battlefield? What happens to them afterwards? And although life can seemingly go on as normal, one of the things that I wanted to do with my character was obviously find out what happens when they go into another war. But going back to my research, I guess I was just became very interested, in particular, in women's lives, and it started really that that reading everything I could and talking. You know, I grew up in a place where, you know, my parents were still known as the young couple 24 years after they moved into the house. <laughs> it was all elderly people, you know, that lived through two wars. And yeah. on our street, for example, there were four ladies who were miss this, miss that, miss the other, you know, because this they'd lost their sweethearts to war, the First World mm. War. whole generation of women, you know, that was, you know, for, for many of whom would never have a husband and children. I became really curious about their lives. And what that meant collectively to a nation and just poked around and read a lot. And of course, you know, moving on, I mean, I had family stories of war to draw upon. But, you know, um, I, I, I guess I read a lot when I, as, as time went on and it was like my personal interest. You could say I became a bit of a history buff. Mm-hmm. I've always loved history. But I I love social history. I mean, mm-hmm. I can, I can uh, you know, we, we all have to learn about the the big events at school and we learn the names, we learn the dates. But I want to poke through that. I mean, when I learned about the Tudor period, for example, in school, I was really interested when we got to the bit about Elizabeth I that she had black teeth. You know, I mean, why does she have black teeth? <laughs> you know? Wow. And, and, and the, the, you know, and I, I would go to castles and, old stately homes and figure out okay so where did they how did how did they keep themselves warm where did they go to the bathroom where did they do this mm. you know blah 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 i was um i'm interested in the human side the really human side of social history so i guess that's the research plus yes i've done a lot of uh, primary research for my novels i've walked the battlefields of the of the first world war in france and belgium I've been to uh, – I've spent a lot of time using the archive at the Imperial War Museum in London, um, reading through letters, you know, memoirs and so on, um, and uh, and listening to audio uh, um, that was, you know, um, recorded years ago and things Mm -hmm. like that. And, and, uh, and, and, And that gives me a lot more than just the human experience. That also gives me a sense of language. Yeah, and of a rhythm of speech. I mean, the things that people there's a lot of things that that people just don't say today that they said then, and that they say now that you would never have said then. Right. For example. Right. Um, no one gets into parenting in in the 1920s. You know, <laughs> you have parents and they exact discipline. You know, people would say, you know, I'm going to do that presently. They wouldn't say, I'm going to do that now, or I'll mm-hmm. do that next. It would be presently. So. So the, the research takes on, it's on several levels and it's, 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 again, it's like researching anything. You, there's different ways to do it. So, so Maisie, that's the, that's
1: the, the Maisie Dobbs books are all, they're all mysteries. Um, and, and Maisie is a psychologist and investigator. Um, what led you to make her a psychologist as well as kind of a, a detective as well?
2: Um, you know, here's the interesting thing that as much as, as, you know, as a writer, you create the character, particularly with a series, so the character reveals themselves to you. And um, right from the beginning, I knew that she, she had studied psychology. I knew that she had this background. I knew that she had a depth of, um, intuition, a depth of intellectual knowledge. And that, that that there had been some formality to her education as well. I knew all of those things mm. about her, and it also made it a very interesting um her a very interesting character for me to explore. But when I started work on Maisie Dobbs, the first novel, I didn't set out to write a mystery. I mm. didn't think, "Oh, I'm going to write a mystery here." I wanted to just write the story that was in my head, and mm-hmm. she just had and because she was a psychologist and an investigator came to me fully fully formed there was obviously going to be a case right and um and it evolved from there and in fact it was a great I was just telling someone this. a great surprise to me when Maisie Dobbs went to press and um you know went into production and my editor called me and said can we talk about the next book in the series and I thought the series right (laughs) (laughs) that's tap dance for a while here and I'll come back to him on that. So I had to really, I, 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 and then I, 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 the gift for me was that I was able to sit down and really think how, how do I want, how do I want this to look and feel? How do mm. I want to develop a series? Because what I didn't want to do was to um, have a series where, you know, every single case could have happened on the same day, the same year, the same right. anything. I, 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 to me, I, I, really wanted to explore um How how people develop over time, and not just Maisie Dobbs, but there's a cadre of characters that readers have actually become very affectionate about. Leave Leave Billy Beale out of a book, as I did at one point, and you know I have the world come down on me. You know what's happened to Billy? What's going to happen to Priscilla's sons? You know, and uh, um, but it's it's you know we're all impacted by. The events of our lives, the events of our day, and what happens on a not just a local level, but internationally. And so I, I just wanted to see, you know, to take my characters through time, so that the, the ex- exploration of character becomes a very rich experience, for me as a writer.
0: So can we, can we circle back to your career? Because you've, you've been a lot of things before becoming a writer. And the first Maisie book was published in 2003. So you were a college textbook salesperson, a life coach. Can you kind of talk to us about just your various careers and what it was like changing careers and becoming a writer full time?
2: There's actually a thread running through those careers. They they all sound very different. Probably the one, there's only a couple that were were quite different and there were decisions made about that but um, oh gosh well for a start I think in doing different things you know you meet so many different types of people and that I I look back on it and that has really informed my writing Hmm. and doing different things having different experiences But, um, I mean, when I went to college, for example, um, I studied uh, education and English. Those were um, what you might call two majors. Uh, I went to a college that specialized in training teachers. And when I started that course, um, frankly, Britain had a severe shortage of teachers. By the time I graduated, you couldn't get a teaching job for love nor money. But at that point... I really wanted to travel anyway, and I wanted to figure – I didn't want to go to school, college, and school again. I just knew I had to travel because I, I have a, I had quite the travel bug. And part of that was being raised in a, quite a rural area, and um, uh, you know, I just wanted – I had to get away like a lot of young people do. And, uh, but I didn't have any money <laughs> and that was a bit of a stumbling block. And so I thought, you know what? And this has always been my MO, I suppose. I thought I'm going to get myself a job where I get to travel. And so I became a flight attendant Oh wow! and I decided, I decided I'm only going to do this two years because I do not want to do this for the rest of my life because it will drive me crazy. And on that first day of training, I met someone who became a lifelong friend and is still my travel buddy. And she had the same, she had the same idea, two years. I just want to figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life. And inside two years, we had both figured it out. I decided that I wanted to, um, if possible work in the world of books. And part of that was because I wanted to get free books. Um, (laughs) and she wanted (laughs) to work in the, in the social services and, um, It was on a flight. I was coming back from goodness knows where. And, you know, people always leave their books and magazines behind. Someone had left behind a copy of Publishers Weekly. And I looked in the back, and there was a job, and it was academic representative for a publishing company. And as an academic representative, you're also doing field editorial. You're meeting with professors and things like that. And I thought, I would really like a job like that. And I looked into it, and I yes, they do have them in Britain. So, oh, I'm going to start applying. Now, trying to get a job with an academic publishing company when you're a flight attendant is, is almost impossible because <laughs> they think they have a certain perspective about what a flight attendant is. And I have to say that, I, that when I was a flight attendant, I worked with more women with degrees than I have ever worked with since, wow. <laughs> but, um, and master's degrees and PhDs. And people just like to travel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, anyway, I eventually worked in academic publishing for an American company and um thoroughly enjoyed that job, so I did that for a while, and then, um, you know, because I had experience in, in marketing and education, I ended up working in education in a marketing capacity in Britain, working at a couple of different colleges, um, which was really interesting, and that led me into working in another company doing marketing communications. And then I came to the United States and uh, I worked in academic publishing again. But um, there was a point where I really wanted to concentrate on my writing. And because of my background in education, I was writing for as a a U.S. correspondent for a couple of um, journals on international education, which meant, you know, writing articles, features and so on. And, um, and as I said, I had the background in education, both having trained in education and working in academic publishing. And so that really gave, started to give me clips. And I was able to then write other articles, particularly travel, um, and other things that interested me. And I wanted to really have more time for that. So that's when I said, Okay, you know, what, I can, I'll move into sales of anything just about and uh, just have it so that I'm paying the rent with that and then I can do my writing. And I did that. And the life coaching came in at a point when, um, and this is going back, you know, 20 odd years now, that I just loved the idea, and I started to read more about it, of people being, being a facilitator for people to do what they really wanted to do. Mm. Because all my life I had figured out what I really want next and I tried to make it happen one way or another. And I think, I think it's really valuable and rewarding if you can be a kind of a facilitator for people to figure out what they want to do and then take the steps to do it. So it's hand-holding people through a kind of a rebirth but obviously, when I started to write myself there, I had to make a choice, and you have to let things go um and by that time i was I was actually working in marketing consulting. I was no longer working for in telecommunications as I was when I started writing um Maisie Dobbs, which is basically working in a tech company but I was uh, doing uh, sort of marketing consulting and i i i was i continued to with day jobs for a good two years after publishing Maisie Jobs and Birds of a Feather um, and, and it was the scariest thing in my life to, to say you know what I I can't keep fudging my way through long book tours mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got to make a choice and it was a case of making a leap for me mm-hmm. and it was terrifying because I I come from a family with a very very strong work ethic and my mum and dad had always taught us that you always have another string to your bow which means you don't just have one job you have two mm. and I've always done something else. You know, I mean, even when I was working in publishing, I mean, I had a, I had a job working in a bar in the evenings at weekends, you know, and and I did that here as well. I worked in academic publishing, but I was also working in a restaurant. I don't know why I just like doing it. (laughs) You know, we have
0: been delving more and more into the topic of our skin as we get older.
1: In What Would Maisie Do?, which, uh, as we said in the beginning, is kind of a companion slash journal to the series. Um, And it's filled with iconic quotes from the books and your commentary where we kind of get more insight into your background and your inspirations for the series. And one thing that um, stuck out to me that I loved is that when you write about how you would ask... um, clients in your life coaching practice, if you had five ingredients that formed your everyday prescription, what Mm -hmm. would they be? Um, And, you know, this is a podcast about self care. And I think people would be interested in hearing why this is an important thing to ask and reflect on. And I know you mentioned this in the book, but if you could just talk about what yours are, um, that would be great, too.
2: Yeah, um, it's, 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 I think a question that that people often ask in the business of coaching. For um, me, it was a really important question. I say people often ask it. I mean, to me, it's a. It, it, I suppose it's something obvious in some ways, but I think in our daily lives we can so often get swept up with all the to dos, and particularly nowadays, I, I really think that that life can be very demanding. Um, in certain ways. And in fact, I was recently reading an article in the New York Times to this effect that this uh, journalist wrote about the fact that, you know, I mean, everyday administration now, you know, just to um, I mean, everybody's probably working on their taxes right now. I mean, it's a nightmare. It's, it really is. But just every day, the things you have to keep track of, yep. that you didn't people didn't have to keep track of 50 years ago. We're like our own little personal administrators and we have our work and we have to pay the rent. And we have to keep in touch with people, and then and then you've got all this darn technology that that is, is quite easily addictive, and and so on. So I remember, you know, I said I said this to each of my clients: if you had a personal prescription, what would it look like? And I I shared what mine would look like. And every day I have to, I know I have to eat well. For example, I mean, by that it doesn't mean I have slap up meals. It means if I start. Smacking and eating junk food because I'm on the fly, I don't feel very well, mm-hmm. so eating good food is really important to me um and and I have to really avoid that because if I start feeling unwell, it means everything else starts to go mm. because I can't work properly. I can't think properly, I'm no good to my friends and family i really I know that I need time in the fresh air, I need time in nature, I need to have that green around me. I have to be creative and I want to spend time with people I love. So, you know, it's one of the the vital things that can make, keep life on an even keel, that keep your boat swimming and going through good times and bad. Mm. And, And you don't always have to hit all of them. And in fact, one thing that I used to ask my clients to do just as an idea is just you take a jar, any old jar, you know, old jam jar or something. And um, what I would do is I would uh, on a sh- on a single sheet um, write down, you know, have a uh, type down all my my five ingredients and then I'd sort of print that off a few times so that I could have an ingredient on one strip of paper, you know, a bit like people do when they have advertisements in a coffee shop and you tear a strip mm-hmm. off the bottom and it's got their phone number on it. But three, so you have a lot of different pieces of paper that have, you know, take a walk, stop for a cup of tea, make a call to your best friend, um, make, make a nutritious meal or whatever those five ingredients are or six ingredients, whatever you think your ingredients should be. And then fold them up and stick them in the jar. And there was one client who used to get uh, in, in real stuck places and, and, and in this loop of, of uh, I can't do this. Oh, dear, I'm, not, I'm no good, etc. And I said, when you get to one of those places, dip in that jar, pull something out, open it up and do what it says. If it says make a nutritious meal, go and make yourself a nutritious meal. If it says I need the fresh air, go out into the fresh air, break the loop. The, this is amazing. I am
1: going so, to be doing. So for this. for <laughs> example,
2: if you've got a headache, if, t- if someone's got a headache, they they'll pop a an aspirin or something. But this is for the profound ache in the soul. You say, "I'm going to dip into my, I'm going to dip into my prescription now, and I'm going to take take one, <laughs> take one or two until you feel better." <laughs> and um, you know, you you. you take it from there. And it's a very simple process. It's a very simple process. And uh, that along my other key thing was really getting to understand your true values in life. Because I think if you understand the values that underpin your life, the things you truly believe in, every decision becomes much easier. Mm. Does this reflect who I am? Does this reflect my values? It becomes much easier who we <sighs> who we're with, whether we stay at a party that we don't really want to be at, you know, all those things. So um, pa- pa- sometimes the most simple things are the most powerful. That's, you know, it doesn't cost an awful lot just to, you know, make up your, you, to sit down and think of your prescription, make up strips of paper, roll them up, stick them in a jar. So you've got a big jar of them and you just put your hand in when you need one. Kate, I know what we're doing this yeah, afternoon. I am, I
0: am. This is so helpful. <laughs> I've never heard heard of this idea before. I am a hundred percent going home yeah. today and making a jar. I have to figure out my prescriptions, but
2: yeah, I yeah. love that. I mean, so one of much. mine is, is spending time with my horse and I, I didn't go out for the last couple of days because I'd, I'd hurt my back early in the week. I'm I, now I couldn't care less about my back. I just know I need to go out there. I need to be around the horse. I need, I need to be around the dirt. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a country girl. I need, I need to feel the earth under my feet. If I don't, and that's, the trouble, most of earth under our feet. We really don't. It's it's um I, I think that's actually a very important factor in life because if you consider 200 150 200 years ago, everybody at some point in the day was in had the had the earth near them and then of course with the industrial revolution everybody moved into cities. And now if you work in a city, unless you've got a really nice park to go to you're going to be in concrete and plastic and inside an office and back home again yeah. without being having your feet on the ground. And our bodies, our psyche has not developed as fast as, as the world around mm. us. And we still need, we st- you know, people make such a big thing about oh, you need to be among the trees. You know, just I'm looking out my window now and I'm surrounded by trees. It's I I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Oh, and I've worked heavenly. in the city. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, Jackie, just one last question for you. For, for all of our listeners who are such fans of the series and have been waiting eagerly for the next installment, can you tell us a little bit about the new book, The American Agent, which I have read, I loved, um, but I don't want to give anything away. So I will let you kind of give everyone a sort of pricey about what it is about.
2: Oh, Okie dokie. Um, you, you have to be really careful not to give things away. Yes. And <laughs> it's so easy to do that. Um, The American agent, well, I'll leave it up to readers to figure out what is meant by the American agent, because it might not be the obvious one when they read the book. Um, But the American agent opens in the early days of the Blitz in London uh, in particular. Um, And I will preface this by saying that um, sometimes uh, people who are not familiar with the history think, that the bombing of London was confined to the Blitz and it wasn't. It actually started earlier on in 1940 and went on right to the end of the war. But, um, but the Blitz refers to a very specific type of aerial warfare inflicted uh, by the Luftwaffe. And uh, it is it's, Blitzkrieg means lightning. And it was intense, intense bombing of uh, cities. And uh, this happens to be set in London at the outset of the Blitz in early September 1940. Amazie Dobbs and her um, friend are volunteering. People were encouraged to volunteer their time. And because of their backgrounds in the first world war they are ambulance drivers and uh, they're going out into the bombing to help people on this particular evening they have a, an american war correspondent with them and american war correspondents were based in britain during the blitz probably one of the most famous is uh, edward morrow mm. who's uh, you can listen to his broadcast even today um this young american woman is subsequently found dead after she has made her broadcast to america and uh, Maisie is asked to investigate, along with someone that she's met before, an American who works for the Department of Justice. And it's the very same man who basically saved her life in Munich, uh, if you've read Journey to Munich. So the the story unfolds, and it doesn't unfold just for Maisie and the case she's working on, but also for those in her immediate family and uh, by family I mean the, the friend that she loves dearly as well and uh, and readers I know just love to know what happens next with just, not just Maisie but Priscilla with Billy Beale mm-hmm. they both have sons in the services um, and with um, you know the other characters in, uh, that, that form part of Maisie's circle and things move on a pace let's just say for Maisie in her personal life and very much through the course of the uh, the case, and uh, and indeed for the country. So I think that's all I'm going to say about yes. that.
1: <laughs> 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 because I
2: could. But um, I, one of the key inspirations. There were two inspirations for me. Um, uh, number number one, um, being the the great reverence I have for war correspondence. Mm. Uh, very much so. Um. I don't have to wear a flak jacket and go to war to tell my stories of war, but, but they do. And uh, in this day and age, when uh, the integrity of the news is being questioned, we must not forget that people go to go into war zones to bring us the news, and they should be revered for that. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and the second thing is actually the power of the radio, which people... For, I think in this day and age we forget how powerful radio was through the 20th century, and actually continues to be powerful today. Um, so those were the two key inspirations for this uh, for this book. Well, and it is wonderful some family, some family history too. Family history. <laughs>
1: um, so uh, it is wonderful, and I also really enjoyed what would Maisie do. Um, so we're very excited about these books coming out. And can you tell our listeners? Um, where they can find you if they want to kind of follow along with your writing, etc.
2: Well, yes. I mean, if you go to my website, which is basically www.jacquelinewinspear.com mm-hmm. um, update, they'll have updates on the books there. And also if you click on the events, there's a list of my upcoming um, appearances with my book tour, which starts on March the 25th. And um in addition, if you click on newsletters, I have a complete newsletter archive, which uh, is each, each newsletter is not is, – actually, it contains a lot of detail about the inspiration for a given book. So, for example, last week, people that received my newsletter, it was all about war correspondence uh the next newsletter will be about the power of the radio. Mm. So, um there's a lot about every book I've ever written um in the newsletter archive. And uh, you'll also be able to read more about what would Maisie do, which, you know, uh can be read not only by people that are familiar with the series, but also people that have never read the series. There's yeah. something for everybody. It, it it becomes a living document uh because of the uh the uh, the questions um effectively coaching questions and uh and journaling pages yeah it's really great so it's all there
1: (laughs) um yeah well jackie it has truly been a pleasure to speak with you thank you so much for taking the time this is a thrill for us yes Um, well it's wonderful for me too thank you yeah and congratulations on the publication of your two new books
2: yeah and thank you very much i'm very excited about them They're, they're actually both really um any book is hard to write um it's hard work. It's That's why they call it work. Um, <laughs> but uh, they were both uh, a joy to write. I really enjoy writing both of those books. Um, and uh, so I'm very excited about it. So thank you very much indeed. I really appreciate your interest.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. So Dora, your intention
0: last week mm-hmm. was to express gratitude for your baby shower, your family, and your health. And I feel like you did that here.
1: Right. Thank you. You know, I I feel like I'm sometimes not the best about like sending timely thank you notes and, sh- you know, showing my appreciation. And I just, especially with the baby shower, I really wanted people to know that I deeply appreciated. Well, message received. So thank you. And, you know, especially after seeing my family, I'm like grateful for my family I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful that this pregnancy is going well. Um, knock on wood. I feel like I always have to say that. Oh, that's fair. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just like really grateful for all of it.
0: And what are you intending on this week?
1: Well, I'm going to
0: try to calm down about not being ready for the
1: baby. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you actually seem calm to me.
1: You know, this is this has been a a lifelong issue of mine. I'm able to project a sense of outward calm while
0: There's turmoil inside inside. turmoil
1: is raging. (laughs) Which is like good in some ways, but also not good in some ways you must be good in a crisis i think i'm good i i'm generally good in a crisis um but i'm also not good at like showing when i am like when i need help yeah or i'm stressed out so i'm trying to be better about that so i'll just be more stressed out (laughs) (laughs) publicly um but that's but asking for help is a big is hard yeah it's a big thing yeah and knowing like knowing how to ask for help and what you need help with and Matt doesn't like to ask for help because he doesn't like to bother people. I think for me, it's like, I don't want to seem weak. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of another, like they both end up in the same place. Yeah, Um, You end up not asking for help. You end up not asking for help. So I'm trying to be a little bit more honest outwardly about how I'm feeling. And I'm feeling like pretty fucking stressed about this baby, especially like, yeah, so... Just going to try to like, be like okay, I'm going to do what I can, but there are going to be things that are outside of my control. Yep.
0: You got this. Okay. And you know what? All this, this feeling of chaos and not having it all done. I, I do feel like it's, it is all good, good, a good experience because the next time it happens, you will be able to connect back to this, the way you're feeling mm-hmm. now And know that it's all going to be okay. Yes. And you'll gain skill and insight from this experience.
1: I hope so. Thank you. You will. Um, How about you, Kate? Mm, I
0: mean, my intention was to watch Schitt's Creek on Netflix. Boy, I'm now in season three. Oh my goodness. I have crushes on everyone on the show.
1: I mean, a lot of them are very handsome. Daniel
0: Levy. I mean, look, Daniel Levy and Eugene Levy. Let's just say it. Father and son. Oh boy, crushing on the whole family. Oh boy, and this, his his sisters on the show too. Oh my goodness. Yeah, they're all a very attractive family, and I just the show just brings me such joy. It's funny, it's sweet, it's heartfelt, and it's short. So it's like twenty. Each episode's like twenty two minutes. Mm. So I've been a snuggling. Snack. Yeah, I've been snuggling into bed around like ten fifteen, ten twenty. Ooh, I yeah. watch an episode of Schitt's Creek. Then I normally start a second one, make it like five minutes, and I'm like, I'm tired. Do you watch it on an
1: iPad? I'm on my phone. On your
0: phone? Yeah. Okay. Keeping it real easy. So anyway, thank you to the creators of Shit's Creek, the actors, the crew. <laughs> Catherine O'Hara. Oh, she
1: is a treasure. I would love to interview her on this podcast. Oh yes, let's put that onto the universe. Putting it
0: into the universe,
1: Catherine, or Catherine's reps, or someone who she is so- knows Catherine.
0: She's so fucking funny on this show. It's like she's so funny, boggles my mind. Anyway, this week, Dory, yes, I am just going to do some Google searching, Mm -hmm. some learning about Italian eating and cooking. Now, this has come up a lot on this uh, podcast. I always talk about my like passion for Italian food, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I'm still just like a total novice. Okay, so I'm kind of curious, like, I kind of want to read a book where it's like, hey, here's what. a regular Italian person in Northern Italy eats. Here's what a per- I, I just have been inspired thinking yes. about my grandparents mm-hmm. and reading some, you know, um, Samin Nosrat's book mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and her show like really, really moved me. And, and I'm just trying to like, you know, experience like the, lo- like slow. I, I don't want to say slow cooking in an obnoxious way, but just like what it would mean like to like roast a tomato. Yeah. In the oven and then mash it up with some olive oil and garlic and like put it on some pasta.
1: Oh, that sounds delicious. does that sound good? Yeah. Like anyway. a really good tomato. Oh,
0: Dory, yeah. you know what I'm going to say, right? I love a good tomato. I love a
1: good tomato. But you
0: know, I even was like Googling Italian cooking classes. Like mm-hmm. part of the this whole intuitive eating thing for me is leaning into the things I, that interest me about food and cooking. Yeah. And that for me is like kind of connecting with my roots my t- little bit of Italian roots that I have mm-hmm. um, and learning more about uh, what food means in that culture.
1: I'm so excited for this. I'm
0: excited for you to cook me food. I will make this a <laughs> part of the meal train that you get going once <laughs> baby arrives. i
1: uh, going to introduce baby to garlic very early. Oh, <laughs>
0: Garlic is my favorite food.
1: So, hey, if you have any Italian
0: recipes to share, give me a wrangle dingle on the voicemail 781 390 You can email us at forever35podcast at com.
1: You can join our Facebook group at com slash group slash forever35podcast. And if you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, tell a friend or
0: like shout us out on the social media. Yeah.
1: We the, love us on the social media. <laughs> social
0: media. I'm so sorry.
1: <laughs> and a reminder that everything we mentioned on the show is always on our website, forever35podcast.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at forever35podcast and on Twitter at forever35pod.
0: And Forever 35 is hosted and produced by Dory Shafraer and Kate Spencer and produced and edited by Sammy Junio. And Lane Hammer
1: is our assistant. Bye, everyone. Goodbye.